Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Dale Jamieson. I'll say a few things about Dale. Uh, then Dale will speak for about 50 minutes. Um, then we're going to have a small, short conversation. I've got a couple of questions. And then we'll open it up to the floor. Um, who is Dale Jamieson? Well, he's one of us. He's a professor at NYU. Uh, he's a truly interdisciplinary scholar. He's a philosopher, but he, he's working with environmental studies. He's I think he used to be head of department of he set up environmental studies at NYU. Um, he's still, although emeritus, still very research active, and uh, uh, he's involved with, uh, I think, the Animal Rights Institute there. But his own research has focused steadfastly, I may say, on ethics and moral philosophy uh, over the years. And he has addressed uh, the most important questions of human life. That's no, there's no other way. There's no way of not making it sound pompous. His writing is not pompous at all. But the, the questions he addresses are the most important questions of human life and our relations to nature, including the moral status of the other animals. His books include the earlier Morality's Progress, Essays on Humans, Other Animals, and the Rest of Nature, 2002 and the more recent reason uh, in a dark time why the struggle against climate change failed and what it means for our future, both books published by Oxford University Press. I may say that Reason in a Dark Time was published before the Paris Agreement, so maybe Dale has come to revise his pessimistic outlook, or maybe not. We'll hear from him <laughs> in a moment. He's also, especially for the undergraduate students here attending, uh, he's the author of a textbook on ethics and the environment, an introduction uh, published by Cambridge 2008, and a new edition, I'm told, is coming out uh, later this year. And uh, it, I don't mean to add that his expertise in these important moral issues is relevant for us today as we meet uh, when COP28 is meeting only a few miles away uh, up the road to Dubai. And he has been one of the leading thinkers on climate justice and climate change. He's one of the first to have observed its ethical significance. His first article on climate change was called Ethics, Public Policy, and Global Warming. And I did actually look it up uh, uh, just this morning. And 30 years ago, he wrote the following words. And it is an important dimension of this problem, climate change that our insults to the biosphere outrun our ability to understand them. We may suffer the worst effects of the greenhouse before we can prove to everyone's satisfaction that they will occur. And a few lines below, he adds, the problem we face is not a purely scientific problem that can be solved by the accumulation of scientific information. Science has alerted us to a problem but the problem also concerns our values. It's about how we ought to live and how humans should relate to each other and, how, uh, and to the rest of nature. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dale Jensen. Well, thank you, Pavlos, um, for that very generous um, introduction. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here in Abu Dhabi. I've been to NYU Abu Dhabi on, I think, one or two previous occasions, but never to the new beautiful campus. So thank you for inviting me. So the idea of rights of nature can elicit howls of laughter in sober and reasonable people, as these cartoons indicate. Now, I hope if I've done nothing else by the end of today's talk that you will have suppressed these howls of laughter and at least moved towards taking this idea of rights of nature seriously. 
Not that it's a view that we should ultimately espouse. Not that if we do espouse this view, it's one that's going to solve all of the problems that we face in trying to live ethical lives in relation to the other living things around us. But rather, it's a set of ideas and keys a set of social movements that are especially important for us to be taking seriously at this moment. Now, some of you may have heard that there is a big elephant down the road known as COP28. And there are many, many issues being discussed at COP28. Uh, and I'm not going to go over all of them. Fossil fuels, phase out, phase down, methane, pledges or agreement. Food systems is now on the agenda. But will the concern with food systems address overconsumption in developed countries? Will it address issues like animal agriculture? Remains to be seen. Uh, loss and damage has now been acknowledged, but we're still looking for the previously pledged $100 billion and then actually getting the money delivered and getting it out the door and then getting it out the door where it actually does some good are themselves very serious challenges. So it remains to be seen how these matters will be resolved, what they will look like at the end of COP28. And there is an enormous temptation uh, when there are big meetings of this sort to try to define them in terms of success and failure. So let me be clear, as you know, I turn out to be a very good prognosticator. Let me declare now that COP28 will be both a success and failure. It will be a success for two reasons. One reason is that the United Nations process in negotiating climate change is now too big to fail. There simply cannot be acknowledged failures in this negotiating process. But secondly, there will be actions that are taken and decisions that are made that will be good decisions and good actions. So in that sense, the process will be successful. But let's draw ourselves back and take a bird's eye view on this saga of climate change. What this figure shows you are global fossil CO2 emissions annually. And what you see is that since 1960, and indeed we could go back much further in time, annual fossil CO2 emissions have increased every year except when there's been global financial collapse, political instability, or a global pandemic. These are not the sort of things that we should countenance as policy interventions. Business as usual has continually led to increased emissions. Even worse, carbon emissions per capita, that is, how much each person emits, has also increased dramatically over the last decades. And again, per capita emissions have tended to stabilize during things like oil crises, the fall of the Soviet Union, and so on. But then, once again, returned to their upward trajectory. Even worse than that, global population continues to increase. And even on optimistic scenarios, global population will not stabilize until the end of the century. And indeed, I would argue that there's no reason really to think that it will stabilize or decline or continue its upward trajectory even after 2100, despite the, the models that, that we have. So what we have then is increasing annual emissions, increasing per capita emissions, and increasing population. This does not, from a bird's eye point of view, look like a successful picture. 
The problem with carbon in particular is that it's a stock problem and not a flow problem. That is, think of emissions as being like water that enters a bathtub through, through the tap. And then the water sits in the bathtub, in the case of carbon molecules, for decades at a time, in some cases even centuries at a time. And so even if you're turning down the cap, even if we had succeeded in reducing emissions, we would still have the stock problem of carbon being built up in, in the atmosphere. So it's going to be a long time after we really get a handle on emissions reduction until we begin to see that signal change in terms of atmospheric concentrations. And indeed, this is exactly what we're witnessing. So if you go back to my earlier slides and we look at the emissions trajectories, what we're seeing is a, an annual buildup, appears almost inexorable buildup, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And indeed, we are seeing uh, ever-increasing warming, and it even looks like the warming has become nonlinear in the last decade or so. And the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization, this is really kind of a shocking fact, the WMO declared at the end of November that no matter what happens in December, 2023 will be the warmest year on the planet since records have been kept. That's how much warmer 2023 is than any previous year. Now, it's not as though this was a meteor from outer space, a bolt from the blue. Who knew, as a former American president was often fond of saying, the science of climate change has built consistently over a very long period of time. And in a different sort of lecture, I would tell you more about that history going back to the early 19th century. It's, it's been science as usual. It's not been a question of conceptual revolutions. It's been the slow growth of knowledge. But in 19, 1988, James Hansen, a NASA climate modeler, testified before a Senate com committee, and this was on the cover front page above the fold, as we say, of the New York Times, that global warming has begun, expert tells Senate. That's 1988. So what, whatever is true of the growth of knowledge before then, since 1988, global warming has begun, has been front page news in America's most prestigious newspaper. Now, um, another way of looking at this data is that since the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was formed to write state-of-the-art reports on the state of climate knowledge, basically 41% of all carbon emissions have actually been emitted during that time. Now, the most staggering slide that I have, that I can present to you, and indeed there can be kind of a competition among people who give climate change talks on who has the most staggering slide. But the most staggering slide I can give you is this one, which essentially maps trends in atmospheric CO2, global temperature, and conferences of the parties. So what you see is that with each conference of the parties, we have more CO2 in the atmosphere and we have increased warming. The warming is indicated by the red and dark colors that are on this, on this graph. Now, if you just looked at this slide and you didn't know we were talking about a diplomatic enterprise and we weren't talking about climate, but you just saw that there were these three trends that were moving in pretty much lockstep together, you would actually wonder whether there's a causal relation between them. But it would be going too far to say that conferences of the parties actually cause climate change. We do know that correlation is not causation. 
Now, at this point, we could just retreat into this Gary Larson cartoon. The picture's pretty bleak, gentlemen. The world's climates are changing. The mammals are taking over. And we all have a brain about the size of a walnut. Well, I don't think we should go that far. There's more that we can say and more that we can do. Now, in, in my book that's been referred to, Reason in a Dark Time, I tried to, among other things, give an account of why we've failed to address climate change and also provide a picture of how we can go forward in what is an inevitably radically transformed climate change world, how we can go forward in that world and live lives that are meaningful, just, and ethical, because that's the world we're going to have to be living in. And it's as important for us actually to be thinking about how to live just lives in a climate change world as it is for us to be thinking about carbon mitigation. But I'm not going to go over that material. I'm just going to try to focus on two factors that I think have been important in our failure to address climate change. And the first factor is just simply that climate change is a really hard problem for animals like us. Evolution built us to respond to accessible rapid movements of middle-sized objects in our visual fields. Evolution did not build us to respond to emissions of invisible, odorless, tasteless gases. Now, the image on the right is an attempt to try to show us what we would be seeing if we were to actually see CO2 emissions. So imagine that if you went about your ordinary everyday life, CO2 emissions were, were really visible. You would be on a freeway or a road and you would see these cluster of emissions. Uh, you would go by a factory, you would see this cluster of emissions. There would be no factory, no automobile that would be protected from its carbon footprint being visible. And you could even go further with this thought experiment and imagine that not only carbon emissions are visible, but imagine that carbon uh, is actually um, something that has a terrible, acrid, nasty smell uh, in addition. Now, if it were the case that our sensory systems were wired in such a way as to see carbon molecules, and to sense them as something distasteful and unwanted, then I think we actually might well have done something to address climate change by now. So part of the problem is just that this is a really, really difficult problem for creatures like us who are wired up in the way that we're wired up. But a second uh, set of problems which is actually, I think, related to the first, is that our decision-making systems are really not set up to address this kind of problem. So ethics is fundamentally about the informal regulation of behavior. And ethics descends from systems that regulated the behavior of small groups of familiar people living in low-technology, low-population-density societies. Now, think about common sense morality. Think about the sort of morality that most people take for granted as being regulative in the conduct of their daily lives. They're really, common sense morality is, in terms of its broad outlines, not very different from the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from, from the mountains. We're still essentially living with broadly within ethical and moral frameworks that were shaped in a different historical period under different material conditions. So it's not surprising then that ethics has failed in providing moral instruction about how to respond to climate change. When I drive a car, when I overconsume, I don't think of myself as contributing to the deaths of innocent people remote in time and space. 
that's just not how our ethical systems work. Economics, as it's evolved since the 17th and 18th centuries, is really about extracting value through market transactions. And it's been an extremely powerful set of institutions at improving human welfare and standard of living. But it also has some extremely important blind spots that are very difficult to overcome when it comes to problems that have diffuse and distant externalities, like the emission of greenhouse gases, for example. And secondly, almost any discount rate that's applied to future costs is basically going to lead to the conclusion that almost anything I do at present to impose costs on the future is going to vanish in terms of the economic calculation that goes into my present decision making. Law is about adjudicating conflicts between present parties. They're the ones who show up in court. They're the ones who file cases. Although present people can sometimes try to represent the interests of future people depending on the jurisdictions. But even more important than the sort of presentist bias, so to speak, of law is the mismatch of scale between the way that our legal system tends to think of conflicts. That is, we tend to think of conflicts as being between individual entities and we seek resolution. Whereas a problem like climate change is a holistic and long-term problem where individual atomistic entities are not the natural unit of analysis. And then finally, our political systems essentially represent the interests of recognized agents, that is, those who make their voices felt in a political system by voting, by organizing, by revolting, or but in some way acting on the basis of their preferences and values. So future people, non-citizens, demoralized and depressed people, which seems to be an ever greater fraction of the population of many Western democracies, and animals in nature are not really represented in our political systems. So all of these decision-making systems, in my view, have failed when it comes to addressing climate change for reasons that we can actually see under close analysis. Now, uh, in, in 1967, a historian, shout out for the historians present here, a historian, Lynn White Jr., uh, a medieval historian at UCLA, wrote an essay that was actually remarkably published in Science Magazine. And the title of this essay was The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. So White wasn't talking about climate change. He was talking about what was already perceived then as an ecological crisis across many different kinds of dimensions. And what, what White essentially argued was that the roots of our ecological crisis had to do with our religious and spiritual worldviews. Now, he had a story um, about how those worldviews map on to the development of science and technology and later on to economic development. But what was actually remarkable about the White essay, and it's been extremely controversial in the half century since it was published, but what was remarkable about it is that rather than seeing the ecological crisis as being a problem of internalizing externalities or a problem of consumers not being ethical or uh, political actors uh, being beholden to special interests, his analysis was that the foundation of the ecological crisis was much, much deeper than that. And in the wake of the White essay, there has been a sort of explosion of writing uh, in various religious and spiritual traditions 
about environmental attitudes and commitments that can be seen as being implicit in those traditions and also in an attempt to identify resources within those traditions that might be brought to bear in helping to tame the environmental problems that we face today. Now, among the stunning facts in, about the world that we currently live in now, on the relatively early edge of climate change, Today, less than 4% of the biomass of terrestrial mammals is composed of free-ranging non-human mammals. So we can think about the extinction crisis in terms of the numbers of, of species that have become extinct or are going extinct. But, but another way to think about the extinction crisis has to do with the representation of those animals in the terrestrial biosphere. And that can be viewed as a kind of harbinger of what's going to happen later in terms of species extinction. And we've already seen an enormous collapse when it comes to measuring the presence of these animals in terms of biomass. Now, interestingly, most of what survives in the world survives under the guardianship of indigenous communities. So indigenous people make up a vanishingly small fraction of the world's population. They are overrepresented among the world's poor. They also uh, control a relatively large part of the Earth's territory. But when it comes to the protection of biodiversity, indigenous peoples are major players. And of course, one of the ongoing struggles in the climate change negotiations, as well, in, as, well as in other domains of international law, is, to how to get, is how to get the interests of indigenous peoples and everything that they represent actually represented beyond the nation state to which their interests are often subservient. And so what we are seeing in some indigenous communities around the world is a movement that's centered on the idea of rights of nature. Now, the rights of nature movement is broader than a movement of indigenous people, but it's really centered on uh, indigenous people. And we've seen this remarkable explosion in the distribution of rights of nature laws worldwide. As you can see on this graph, in 2006, there were hardly any laws that made any reference to rights of nature. But there's been an enormous uh, increase up to 2021 that continues to grow. And the idea of rights of nature is, in different ways, gaining traction across the globe in different countries, but the real home of the rights of nature movement is really in South America, and there the deepest center of the rights of nature movement is in Ecuador, where the rights of nature is enshrined in the 2008 Ecuadorian Constitution. And these four articles that specify the obligations that rights of nature entail are really enormously uh, interesting because they relate to respecting the rights of nature, but they also relate to the restoration of nature. They also empower communities to make claims on behalf of, of, of nature as well. So it's a quite strong and, and remarkably actionable, uh, at least in legal terms actionable, political terms is another matter, uh, feature of the Ecuadorian constitution. And there have been two extremely interesting cases that have been decided uh, under this article. The first is the Los Cedros case, which, which by a seven to two vote, 
the Constitutional Court of Ecuador ruled in favor of, a, of an extremely large protected forest in which indigenous people live, which protects over 200 species. And it essentially blocked a Canadian mining company from implementing claims that they had made to develop mines in this area. And you can imagine, as a political matter, how difficult this decision must have been for the justices of the, of the, of the, of the court. So it's a remarkably brave and important decision. Now, one of the things that we'll be talking about in a moment is exactly what rights of nature come to and how they relate to individuals. But there's another interesting case from the Ecuadorian Supreme Court called the Estrelita, the Estrelita case in 2022, which is a somewhat weird case. It's a case in which a woolly monkey was essentially removed from the forest in, in violation of Ecuadorian law sold in a market to a person who then lived with a woolly monkey for almost 20 years. And the woolly monkey was part of the family and um, life seemed to go okay. And then at that point, somebody filed a complaint against this family for having uh, a protected animal. And so the state came in and took the woolly monkey, confiscated the woolly monkey, on the grounds of violation of Ecuadorian law. And the monkey died almost immediately in state custody. So it's, 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 it's kind of a strange case because there were legal violations on the part of every party that was in, in, involved here. But what was really remarkable is that, again, by a 7-2 to two vote, the Ecuadorian Constitutional Court basically said that Estrelita had the right to habeas corpus, e even though by the time the decision was rendered, Estrelita was, was already dead. Um, now, both, now, this stuff is really hard, and I'm going to be getting into some of the complexities of trying to think about a jurisprudence of, 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 of rights of nature. But I would recommend to people to read the Constitutional Court's decisions in both these cases, because you can see the justices struggling with really difficult material in a very intelligent and responsible way. And I think really moving the discussion forward and trying to think about what rights of nature, actionable rights of nature might actually entail. Okay, so, um, so now um, we can ask some questions, the hard questions about rights of nature. So one question is the question of ground. In virtue of what, nature in this case, do we think of as an entity as being right-bearing? Then there's a question of identification. Which entities are bearers of rights? Then there's a question of scope. How extensive is a system of rights? And what exactly are the protections and prerogatives afforded by having a right? Then there are questions of conflict. How do we resolve conflicts? The more right holders there are, the more conflicts inevitably there will be. How do we resolve those conflicts? Then there is in the background the question of function. What exactly is a system of rights supposed to do? And does the idea of rights of nature sort of torture the idea of rights and their proper function beyond recognition? And then finally, there's a, an epistemological question. How do we know which entities have rights? Even if we have some criterion, we've answered the question of ground. How can we still go out in the world and identify rights holders? Now, there are really two main approaches to this. And you, know, you can sort of extrapolate a lot of different ways of trying to answer these questions. And you can go into this in all sorts of levels of depth. But I'm going to pull out two major themes in the way rights of nature discourse have tried to respond to these questions. And the first is a view that's often called extensionism. And this is a view that really first, or an approach that first came to prominence among animal protectionist philosophers. Uh, in this slide is Peter Singer and Tom Reagan. Peter Singer famously in 1974, wrote a book called Animal Liberation, 
1983, Tom Reagan wrote a book called The Case for Animal Rights. Now, this view is usually called extensionist because essentially the argument is that the same criteria that we attribute rights to humans actually also apply to non-human animals, and so rights should be extended to non-human animals as well. Now, I don't think the language of extensionism is a very good language because Singer and Reagan aren't really arguing that we should extend rights to animals. They're arguing that we should recognize that the rights that animals are entitled to. Um, it's a little bit like viewing a human rights case as a question of whether we're going to extend human rights to some oppressed group of people. That's really not the right language for these cases. The right language is to say that we should recognize the rights in these cases. But nevertheless, that discussion has gone on under the language of extensionism. Now, at, during the same year in which Singer published Animal Liberation, Christopher Stone, a law professor at the University of Southern California, published a law review article, which then became a book, called Should Trees Have Standing?, in which he argued, quote, I am quite seriously proposing that we give legal rights to forests, oceans, rivers, and other so-called natural objects in the environment, indeed, to the natural environment as a whole. And, um, and Stone had his moment of influence when uh, he was cited by Justice William Douglas in a dissenting opinion uh, in an important environmental case uh, uh, regarding uh, an attempt by Disney to build a ski resort in, 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 in the Sierra Mountains. Now, again, this is a very impressive piece of writing that I think moves the discussion in constructive directions, but he really does dodge most of the difficult questions that I identified previously. So on the question of grounding, essentially what Stone says is that calculations of damage to natural objects can be made independent of interests, that is, of human interests. Really? Uh, how do I know what, the, what damage means to a tree or to a forest from the point of view of a tree or a forest? Not so obvious to me. And when it comes to the problem of identification, what are the rights bearers here? He says the problems of selecting an appropriate ontology are problems of all language. Sure, that's true. I do not see why, in principle, the task of working out a legal ontology of natural objects should be any more unmanageable. Well, just because a problem is familiar doesn't mean that it's not vastly more difficult in a different context. So, again, this article and book are extremely provocative, full of interesting insights, but still leave many of the most foundational questions unanswered. Now, another philosopher, Paul Taylor, in a book that was published in 1986 called Respect for Nature, I think really provided the most serious and conscientious attempt to work out these questions. Uh, and he also discussed conflict cases and tried to lay out a set of rules for resolving conflicts. Now, um, so it's an extremely rigorous book, and again, I think it's well worth reading to see where such a view uh, sort of would take you if it was implemented in a really um, full-on way. But of course, the resulting ethic is extremely demanding and arguably even, even perhaps unlivable. I mean, it becomes uh, a deep moral crisis, for example, um, to, say, cut down a woodland to build a medical center and not just because people like the woodland. Now, a political scientist, John Rodman, in 1977, reviewed both the Singer book and the Christopher Stone book in the same article. And again, I think this is a really important paper. And what Rodman writes as he says, it's curious how little appreciation there has been of the limitations of the moral legal stage of consciousness. If an existing system of moral and legal coercion does not suffice, our tendency is to assume 
that the solution lies in more of the same, in greatly extending the laws and rules which already are beginning to govern our treatment of nature. Stone fails to confront the implicit tension between a rights model and an ecological model of nature, and he fails to see that his ultimate vision of the human-nature relationship is probably incompatible with a legal system that operates in terms of objects, interests, property rights, compensable damages, and national forests. We may need to become less moralistic and less legalistic, or at least to become less fixated at the moral legal stage of consciousness. Now, I think what Rodman is getting at is that there's a kind of deeper critique behind what's now become the rights of nature movement. And it's a critique that I call the metaphysical critique. And I can articulate it in the following way. Our prevailing system of rights rests on a worldview that misunderstands us and our place in nature. We see ourselves as individual atoms distinct from nature, interacting with each other in the world through a kind of billiard ball model of causality. But what we learn from modern science and indigenous worldviews is that we are necessarily relational beings. We're involved in dynamic systems and communities that our legal systems do not adequately reflect. And in trying to protect the more-than-human world with traditional Anglo-American law is like trying to do brain surgery with a chisel. Now, um, now the question then is, I mean, I think there's something that is quite intuitive about the metaphysical critique. And the question then is how to think of it as being in any way actionable. So where we seem to be when we try to think through rights of nature in a rigorous way is that the extensionist model uh, has all kinds of problems, including the problem of identification. I'm, I'm not going to go through this now. I, I don't know how I'm doing on time, but I'm, I'm not going to go through this now. But think about ecosystems, for example, as something that have rights. Well, ecosystems change, and ecosystems succeed each other. And, how, you know, and is it the case that a successor e ecosystem has wronged the prior ecosystem uh, in sort of driving it from existence? So there's all of those kinds of questions that we can ask. And when it comes to the metaphysical uh, critique or the metaphysical view of rights of nature, it really threatens to overthrow the entire juridical perspective that rights of nature in its very name seems to accept. So, so what can we do to try to make this intuition, this impulse, in some way actionable? Well, there's an old idea uh, that we might be able uh, to try to resuscitate, and that's an idea of sacredness. Now, sacredness is a term that's often used in religious discourse. So the image on the left uh, is, uh, from one point of view, is it on the left? Yeah, it's on the left, is from one point of view, a chalice of wine and a piece of bread. But from the point of view of some Christian denominations, uh, it is actually the body and blood of Jesus, and so has this sacred dimension. But it's also clear that the idea of sacredness has also been detached from its perhaps original home in religious discourse. And so this is a report from the IUCN, <coughs> which an in interesting idea that the International Union for the Conservation of Nature would issue a report using the word sacred, called sacred natural sites. So there is a way <coughs> that we can use the word sacred outside of this religious context. And I think increasingly what we've discovered is that among some indigenous peoples, there really isn't this distinction between uh, what's religious and what's useful and what's pragmatic. Traditional Aboriginal art, for example, of which this is an example, function both as sacred objects and also as migration maps and maps to food sources as, as well. Now, um, <clears throat> my former late colleague, Ronald Dworkin, uh, in a, a relatively short passage uh, in an early book, uh, tried to develop a secular notion of the sacred. This was in the context of writing up about the sacredness of human life. And according to Dworkin, uh, if something is sacred, that means it's inviolable. 
And what inviolability means is that it can only be destroyed for urgent reasons, perhaps to promote something else that is sacred. Now, it's clear that what Dworkin was ruling out is that what is taken to be sacred can be destroyed simply on the basis of benefit-cost analysis. The values at stake had to be something beyond those kinds of economic values. Now, in Dworkin's view, nature isn't sacred, but aspects of nature are sacred. And so he specifically refers to species and redwood trees. Now, a relatively obscure British philosopher named Alan Holland, uh, uh, of whom there is no image on the Internet, has a, uh, a rather different uh, conception of the sacred. And on Holland's view, nature... Uh, as a holistic entity is sacred. And he doesn't think of nature as a set of universal laws, but the exact set of conditions that has given rise to the actual world. On Holland's view, virtually everything that exists, such as species, uh, is a particular individual. And that's why we're so concerned with irreversibility and biodiversity, right? Because that particular individual thing, that's a species, is never going to come back. So on Holland's view, nature is an unrepeatable generative achievement. And again, he writes in the spirit really of Dworkin here, what is sacred is exempt from transactions of various kinds. Again, what he means is that economic decision-making does not take precedence here. And nature has a special status as sacred because it is a precondition for life as we know it, and he draws a, a kind of analogy to parents. So, uh, but the other thing that I think is important about Holland's view is that he thinks that nature is amoral, so there is an ongoing conflict between the sacred and the ethical. The sacred is just another domain of value that will always be in collision with the ethical. And the demands of the sacred are not overriding, but they cannot be silenced. Nature can never really be and made subservient to our systems of decision-making. Now, um, now, what I think is, is important about these metaphysical perspectives is not so much that they're going to be turned into actionable law, but they can put pressure on existing legal doctrines and structures. Our legal systems can be quite resourceful at trying to get to what we regard as the right conclusions, even when the resources that are available do not often seem very promising. And the resources for doing this are quite broad. Sometimes we change legal doctrines, but I think even more often we change concepts, words can shift their meanings, and we seem to be holding the doctrines intact, but we've done a kind of bait and switch by changing the concepts and the meaning of words. And I think one interesting example of this is that in 2014, uh, I argue that one, uh, that one reason we have a hard time dealing with climate change is that it confounds our traditional causal notions. And since it confounds our traditional causal notions, we don't really know how to think about liability. But since then, there's been this rise of an area of science called attribution science, which uh, tries to link climate change with specific extreme events. Now, what's interesting about attribution science is, on the one hand, there has been progress in the science. Uh, we, we have models now that are less coarse than they were for the attribution of extreme events. But the other thing that's gone on, which tends not to be noted, is we've also become more permissive in our idea of attribution and even the switch to the language of attribution from causality is essentially signaling that. So we're sort of willing to see a causal relationship now that we weren't in the past under the pressure of this weird kind of problem of climate change. Okay, so I want to end then with a pitch uh, for pragmatism, not the sort of pragmatism that philosophers talk about but the kind of pragmatism that I think is in really intrinsic, at least to certainly Anglo-American law. When, when people talk uh, about uh, corporations as, um, as, 
as legal entities with rights. Nobody thinks that they've made some foundational metaphysical argument. There's no extensionist argument here that, oh, in the past we missed the fact that corporations are objects of moral concern. We have to rectify that and recognize their rights. It's essentially a pragmatic argument that we can generate lots of benefits by seeing corporations as legal entities that are the bearers of rights. And I think that whatever happens going forward, we need to be that pragmatic in thinking about ideas like rights of nature and the ideas of the sacred. Because I think it's clear that the way that we have tried to address climate change and our existing ethical and legal and political frameworks has really not worked. So I'm just going to end with a few morals. So existing economic, ethical, legal systems are failing to protect nature and ultimately ourselves. We have to learn from science, but also from indigenous peoples and spiritual traditions. It's important to recognize that knowledge and empathy often grow together. I think extensionism should be pursued as a theory, as kind of a theoretical project. And we have an ongoing attempt to make this metaphysical critique actionable. But we also must reform existing legal and ethical concepts to the greatest extent possible and be open to giving old concepts like that of the sacred new content for the world in which we now live. And I think it's important to recognize that change is not optional, that it's not a question of keeping the world as it is or embarking on some very strange, scary journey. We have embarked on a very strange, scary journey. And so the last thing I want to say is about hope and fear. As people often say, that it's important to inspire hope in audiences and that fear is a bummer and fear is a downer and fear doesn't motivate people. But I want to suggest that fear and hope can exist together and that there have been times in human history when we have let hope drive out fear. When Chamberlain went to Munich, he let hope drive out fear. And I think too often in the climate change case, because we feel the importance of inspiring people and providing them with hope, we have not actually confronted the perfectly rational fear we should have of the world that we're creating and told the truth directly as it is. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.